If you would please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, Matthew 26, verses 47 to 50. Matthew 26, 47 to 50. And then our sermon passage, we're back in 2 Samuel, beginning at chapter 19, verse 41, and reading through chapter 20, verse 26. That's the end of chapter 20. So we're moving apace. And I'll let you in on a little bit of my thinking. I'm debating right now. I planned on ending... Uh, at the end of Second uh, Samuel, uh, chapter 24, so we've got technically after today, we'll have four more chapters. However, the first two chapters of First Kings finishes out the Davidic cycle. And so I'm debating right now whether to just go ahead and just you know, push on through and we'll, we'll, we'll go all the way to David's death or, or, or maybe we'll just end it at the end of Second Samuel. I'm not sure, and then Lord willing, uh, my plan is to, to take us back into the New Testament um, after this just to continue that uh, cycle of alternating as much as possible between Old and New Testaments. But I haven't made up my mind yet. We'll see how that all goes. We'll see how the next few weeks go and these next two, few chapters go. But I think it might be uh, good in one sense to, to go to second, uh, first Kings, rather, first two chapters and wrap things up. But what I'm worried about is you'll just want me to continue on and we'll uh, hear about Solomon and, and all the other kings. So we'll see how that all goes. But uh, you can pray for me as... Uh, go through that uh, decision-making process. But uh, today, we're in 2 Samuel 19, verses 41, through chapter 20, verse 26. But first, we'll read just a few verses out of Matthew 26, verses 47 to 50. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. If you hear nothing else today, which I hope you will give at least a little attention to the sermon, but if you hear nothing else today, hear the Word of the Lord He is speaking to you. God's word says that it is living and active. This is not a dead letter. These words are alive. And these words bring life and they support life. And so it would be well of you to give your full attention to the reading of God's holy word. Matthew 26, 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now turning to 2 Samuel, beginning at uh, chapter 19, verse 41, and reading through the end of chapter 20. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. 
So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out with, after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword, and in its sheath fastened on his, and its, in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's younger men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went, out, uh, went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from, from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. 
And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. This ends the reading of God's most holy and infallible word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, there are times in which your word is unflinching in its depiction of evil, of depravity, of murder. Lord, there is not good reason, but certainly some reason that some around the world have seen fit to ban your word. Not only because it is the word of God, but because it does contain, in some instances, very graphic descriptions and details of events that take place, that have taken place. And in some ways, Lord, we who are in this modern or postmodern era, we find such depictions to be, make us uneasy. For some, it might make us even a bit queasy. And yet, Lord, there is a reason for every jot and tittle, every detail that is contained in your word. We pray that you would give us a deep love and an appreciation and respect for your word. We pray that we would handle it carefully and reverently and correctly. And so we pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your spirit today as we consider this portion of scripture. May you be glorified, O Lord, as your word is now preached. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you dig uh, deeply enough in your memory banks, you will remember that in the previous passage, a passage that we uh, considered uh, over a month ago, Joab had to rouse David out of his grief over the death of his son Absalom. Absalom, who had staged a coup and stolen the kingdom, from David's hands. You'll remember that when David began his return to Jerusalem after having been exiled in the Transjordan region east of the Jordan River, he was met at the river by Shimei and Ziba and Mephibosheth. You'll remember that Shimei had cursed David when David was fleeing Jerusalem as Absalom was making his way to take the city. Ziba had lied to David about Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, saying that he supported Absalom and was staying in Jerusalem to await his arrival. Mephibosheth alone was worthy of a pardon. And yet as David gave pardons to these three men, Mephibosheth got the worst deal of them. But he was thrilled just to be back in the company of David. But the one who really came out on top in all of this business of all of those who had joined Absalom in his rebellion, was Amasa, whom Absalom had put in charge of the army of Israel, taking Joab's place. In the preceding passage, David promised Amasa that he would be the commander of his army from now on, thus excluding Joab for the rest of his life. However, David, in that exchange that that followed that, he showed great favoritism to Judah over the northern tribes of Israel, which directly led to Sheba's rebellion. So the stage is set then for what takes place in our passage this morning. As we make our way through the passage, we consider God's word. I would ask you to think about this. Betrayal is an all too sad reality of life in a fallen world. But one man's betrayal 
brought about the greatest joy you will ever know. Let me say that again. Betrayal is an all-too-sad reality of life in a fallen world. But one man's betrayal brought about the greatest joy you will ever know. The sermon has three parts. Betrayed by brothers is the first. The second, betrayed by a kiss. And the third, the betrayer beheaded. Again, betrayed by brothers, betrayed by a kiss, and the betrayer beheaded. So let's look at the first part of the sermon, the betrayed by brothers. As alluded to a moment ago, the northern tribes of Israel had felt the sting of David's favoritism of Judah, his own tribe over them. David was the king of all Israel, this united kingdom of north and south. He was the king of the tribes, the ten tribes of Israel, and the two tribes of Judah and Simeon. While Israel had followed Absalom and his coup, once he was dead and they had come to their senses, they independently decided to fall back in line with David. And they were first before Judah to say, we need to go and to help David come back into the land. But David used their revived loyalty as an occasion to elicit jealousy from his tribe. And so Judah, upon hearing that Israel had come, or was on their way at the very least, Judah rushed to meet him at the eastern shore of the Jordan River, and they ushered David back into the promised land. And so in chapter 19, verse 41, the men of Israel object. They ask David, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? They were simply asking to be a part of it. They didn't want to be the exclusive ones to ferry David across. They just wanted to be a part of the company that did it. Now, in truth, it was a severe mistake for David not to have had both of these kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdoms, ferry him and his people across the Jordan. It would have been more than a gesture. It would have been an act of reconciliation to unify the nation had he done so, had he waited until all Israel had arrived. But he gave preference to Judah, and Israel was deeply offended, and rightly so. But notice that David doesn't even answer Israel's question. Who does the answering to Israel's question? Judah does. David is effectively sidelined. All the men of Judah answered Israel. They say in verse 42, because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? What they don't understand is that David's showing this preference to them, giving them the honor of crossing the Jordan River, which is always a gigantic occasion in the life of God's people in ancient Israel. By showing preference to Judah, he has given Judah an enormous gift. So this didn't do anything to placate the men of Israel, as you can imagine. They respond in verse 43 by reminding Judah that they have ten shares in the throne. Because they are comprised of ten tribes. And in David personally, they have more interest than Judah. The tribes would give tribute to the king. So ten tribes versus two were giving tribute to David. They were, as we pointed out, the first ones to even speak of David, uh, getting David back to Jerusalem. But we read in the last sentence of verse 19 that the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And so Judah prevailed. David apparently sat and watched. David did nothing to intervene or to assert his kingly authority. And just when they were so close to being reunited with Judah, Israel was once again set on a path to rebellion because they were betrayed by their brothers. 
In chapter 20, verse 1, we're introduced to a man heretofore unmentioned. But before we even get to his name, the author informs us that he is a worthless man. The author uh, often doesn't interject his own, uh, his own thoughts, his own impressions, his own opinion uh, into Scripture. And yet here, he does. His name is Sheba. He is the son of Bichri. He's a Benjaminite. Now, Benjamin was, of course, the tribe of Saul and one of the ten northern tribes of Israel. The only other southern tribe was Simeon, and it alone stood with Judah and was essentially a part of Judah because its boundaries were completely confined within Judah. As soon as we read the description of Sheba, we know something bad is about to take place. Verse 1 says that he blew a trumpet and he declared that we, meaning Israel had no portion in David, no inheritance in the son of Jesse. He called on every man to go to his tents, meaning that they should depart. They were going to rebel this time by seceding from the kingdom. And so all of the men of Israel withdrew. withdrew. They followed Sheba, but Judah remained with David. And so in the case of this, in a sense, this secession that took place between the southern and the northern tribes, it's the south who with Israel tries to keep them uh, in the kingdom, to keep them in the nation. Verse 3, we finally read of David's return to Jerusalem, and it is completely anticlimactic. There's no triumphal return, no crowds welcoming, welcoming him home. Instead, we read simply that David came to his house in Jerusalem where his ten concubines had remained. And then we read this brief but tragic account. There's one verse. We read that David took the ten women who he had left to care for his home, and he put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but he never had any relationship with them again. Now think about this for a moment. Why did the author, ultimately we're talking about God himself, why did the Lord choose to have this piece of information, this detail placed here? It's intriguing that he did so. Sheba had led a rebellion against the king, You want the men of Judah to go after Sheba, to track him down, to stop this secession that's taking place? And so why is this information about the ten concubines included precisely here? Well, one commentator has a helpful explanation. The violation of the harem and the imprisonment of the concubines now symbolically become the seal on the secession of the ten tribes. Just as the women were unable to safeguard David's house... David has proved unable to preserve the house of Israel. There's a significance to the fact that each, there are ten tribes of Israel, there are ten concubines of David. And the women have been defiled by David's own son Absalom. Now they serve as a reminder of David's failure to keep the ten northern tribes in the kingdom. And so David puts them away. Out of sight, out of mind. They live as if in widowhood until the day they died. But at least we can say that David did provide for them. The men of Israel felt betrayed by their brothers in the south. David and Judah felt betrayed by Israel. And no doubt these widows of a man who still lived felt betrayed by him. And that brings us to the next part of the sermon, Betrayed by a Kiss. Now remember that the men of Judah, at least a a good portion of them, they have just returned from a successful but wearying campaign against Absalom and the tribes of Israel. 
But in verse 4, David told Amasa to call the men of Judah to come to David within three days. They've just gotten back home. They're weary. They're tired. Now they're being recalled. They're called to action. They're called to fight, perhaps. And we read in verse 5 that Amasa was unsuccessful in getting all of the troops assembled in Jerusalem within the three-day time frame and that he had delayed beyond the time set that had been appointed to him. The clear implication being that he wasn't up to the task. Amasa couldn't do the job that needed to be done. And so David told Abishai, Joab's brother, in verse 6, Now Sheba the son of Bichru will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. Now there has been no mention of Joab up to this point in the narrative, but David almost quotes Joab's words to him from chapter 19, verse 7, when Joab rebuked David in order to get him to go out and to speak kindly to the men who had fought for him and fought against Absalom. There's been no mention of Joab until chapter 20, verse 7, where we hear about him indirectly. And there went out after him Joab's men. And the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. Now, Joab is going to come back uh, to the fore in just the next verse. But this indicates to us that these men, they're not Amasa's men. They're not Abishai's men. They're not David's men. These are Joab's men. And that's significant. The author is letting us know that Joab is about to make a reappearance. Now, Joab would not have been happy about being replaced by Amasa, who was his cousin. But he also would have been convinced that Amasa was not up to the task. And so he quite literally takes matters into his own hands. Verse 8 says that when Joab's men were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa caught up with them. Gibeon, you may remember, was the location where Abner killed Joab's brother, Asahel. And it is here, at Gibeon, that Joab makes his return in the narrative. We read that Joab was wearing a soldier's garment over which he had a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened to his thigh. And as he was walking forward to meet Amasa, the sword fell out, which gave the appearance that Joab was unarmed. And Joab greeted Amasa in verse 9. He took Amasa by his beard with his right hand to kiss him. And this was normal. It was a normal form of greeting among men who were close friends, especially ones who were cousins. But Joab had a sword in his left hand, which Amasa could not see. And verse 10 is pretty graphic. So suffice it, suffice it to say that Joab definitely dispatched Amasa by stabbing him in the abdomen. After which Joab and his brother Abishai went on, their, on in their pursuit of Sheba. They simply left Amasa to die in the middle of what's described as a highway. This was the road by which all of the army of Judah had to take to follow after Joab and Abishai. Here was the spectacle of a man who lay dying, blocking their way. And one of Joab's men, he tried to get the soldiers to keep going past. If you want to be loyal to Joab, if you want to be loyal to David, keep going. Follow them so you can go after the man Sheba. But these men, the soldiers, they stopped. They were shocked. He was slowing down the progress of the troops. And so the young man carried Amasa's body into a field. He covered the body with a garment so there would no longer be an impediment. And the army followed on after Joab and Abishai. Amasa's death is yet one more tragedy in a series of tragedies. To be, cre- to be greeted like a close friend and then to be stabbed, not in the back, but in the stomach, by your own cousin is a terrible betrayal. And yet all of these tragedies, 
All of these series of betrayals, all of these rebellions, they come as a result of David's betrayal of Uriah when he took his wife Bathsheba. Everything tragic in chapters 11 through 20 is a consequence of David's heinous sin. It's surprising in one sense that these chapters were included at all if if the author had simply left off at chapter 10 and then skipped over to chapter 21 to, to conclude the book. Well, for one thing, the book would have been a lot more boring, but for another thing, we wouldn't have read about all of the atrocious sins and their consequences of David and his men. But when you remember that God is the primary author of Scripture, it's not so surprising. God's word depicts with great clarity the depravity of sin, the ugliness of evil. And these previous ten chapters show us not only what David was capable of, the dark deeds to which David sank. It also shows us what we are capable of. David was an Old Testament saint. He was, if you will, an Old Testament Christian. He trusted, though he didn't know his name precisely, in the one who was to to come. David's betrayal of one of his top commanders, Uriah, is his heinous sin against Bathsheba. It led to a series of betrayals throughout the rest of his life. These would plague him to his dying day. Now think about this. Adam's and Eve's heinous sin against God led to a tragic series of betrayals and reprisals throughout the course of history, down to our own day. And each and every one of us here, if you're old enough, perhaps not the youngest of us, although they may feel uh, have felt a sense of betrayal from time to time, but each of us knows what it's like to be betrayed. To be betrayed by friends, by people you thought who loved you. To be betrayed by family members. To be betrayed by co-workers or a boss. To be betrayed by a spouse or a child or a father or a mother. Each of us knows what it's like to endure that type of treatment. But here's something else to remember. So does the Lord. God knows exactly what betrayal by a close friend is like. But God used Christ's betrayal to bring about a great blessing for his people. And that brings us to the third and the final part of our sermon, the betrayer beheaded. In verse 14, the narrative returns briefly to Sheba, who we read went north through all the tribes of Israel to the city of Abel of Beth Ma'akah. According to Joyce Baldwin in her commentary, Abel was at the very northern limits of Israel's territory on the headwaters of the Jordan River. Sheba is a Benjaminite. The tribe of Benjamin was just to the north. Uh, It was the next uh, bordering tribe to Judah. Sheba was not in his home country. And the passage indicates that as Sheba was making his way north with all of Israel, the tribes of Israel behind him, the rest of the tribes, they peeled off and went to their own homes, leaving Sheba alone except for some fellow members of his clan, perhaps a handful or so of the men of his clan. He went as far as he could go and yet still remain in Israel proper. But he was effectively abandoned. 
seems as though Sheba's rebellion actually served for most of the men of Israel as a pretense just for them to get back home. They weren't willing to stand with Sheba when it really mattered. And so Sheba took refuge in the northern city of Abel of Beth Maacah, a city known for its wisdom throughout Israel, a city known as a mother in Israel, as the wise woman puts it just a few verses later down. And it's this city that Joab and his men began to besiege in verse 15. And that verse says that they began to build siege works against the city. They cast up a mound against the city. These, these cities were walled fortresses. The walls were very tall. They were very broad, thick at the base, and narrowed as they got taller. And so to build up a mound put you at a, at a, at a level where the wall was thinner, a little more easily uh, bombarded by, by the battering rams that they would take and try to knock the walls down, which is precisely what Joab and his men were trying to do. And just then a wise woman for the city called down for the men uh, to send Joab to speak with her. And so the siege of the city paused. Joab came forward and they began to speak. And the woman began, uh, said beginning in verse 18, they, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I'm one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Now apparently Joab's reputation preceded him. And I can't remember whether this has been pointed out or not as we've been uh, worked our way through 2 Samuel. But, but what does Joab's name mean? Yahweh is father. And here is a mother of Israel. This city is a mother of Israel. And this woman is a mother of the city. And so Joab responds in verse 20 saying, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. The gentleman doth protest too much, methinks. He says it over and over again. He had just destroyed a man, his cousin. For no other reason than that he stood in Joab's way of being the top general in David's army. The lady of the city was wise indeed. She knew exactly the type of man she was dealing with. But Joab continues in verse 21 saying that if the people of Abel will give up Sheba alone, they will withdraw from the city. And the woman responded somewhat shockingly. You don't expect this from such a peaceable, wise woman. Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. They didn't want Sheba there. They didn't want his men there. They weren't interested in being a city of refuge for this man. They had no interest or desire for the walls of their city to be destroyed. And so the woman gives what is an agreeable solution to the situation. And verse 22 says, Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. They apparently followed her. She appeared to be the leader of this city. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. And so he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. The chapter, chapter 20, has four more verses, but in a sense it ends here. The last four verses are taken up with the positions of authority various men had under David. Joab is mentioned in the, uh, first in verse 23 as being in command of all of the army of Israel, which confirms that he did succeed in his desire to regain his position of power and authority. But the last four verses don't really keep the chapter, and really this entire section of the book comprised of chapters 11 to 20 from ending in a minor key. The leader of the rebellion had his day of reckoning, but all of this was the fallout of the sins of the king. There's little joy at the end of this chapter. 
And there really shouldn't be. Thankfully, we serve a king, the consequences of whose actions are eternal life, peace with God, victory over sin. David's actions brought the consequences of tragedy and betrayal and rebellion and secession. But King Jesus' actions brought peace, reconciliation, joy, hope, eternal life. While the consequences of David's actions were long-lived, and the repercussions continued to echo and reverberate through David's son Solomon and on down through the, the kings, all the way up to, to, to Israel's and Judah's exile, while they were long-lived, they weren't eternal. The consequences of Jesus' actions will never end because He is the eternal one who came in the flesh. And He was betrayed so that others who have been betrayed as well as the betrayers could have their sins forgiven. Jesus too was betrayed with a kiss. But forgiveness was the result, not retaliation, not retribution, not vengeance. Now, brothers and sisters, we are rebels too. We have betrayed Christ. That is in our past. Hopefully it's not in our futures. But just as Peter was capable of denying Christ, so we too are capable. But even though he knew we would betray him, he died for us. And as a result of his death, as a result of his perfect life, as a result of all of his obedience, we have been reckoned as righteous. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let us pray. Grateful God, we thank you that for us, our day of reckoning happened 2,000 years ago. We are grateful, Lord. We know that we do still, at least on occasion, have to live with the consequences of our sin, but not the eternal consequences. We know that sin is justly deserving of eternal damnation in hell. But we are thankful that for all who call upon the name of the Christ, all who, uh, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, our sins have already been condemned to hell. The punishment for our sins was meted out upon the one who never sinned. Our day of reckoning already took place. And by grace through faith, we have been reckoned as righteous. And you, O oh Father, you are the judge of the nations. You look down upon us as your righteous, perfectly obedient children. We are grateful. We know that we do not deserve it. We know that your love, that your grace, that your mercy, it is unmerited. And yet we are thankful that your love is perfect. That it is never ending, that it is never failing, that it is steadfast for all eternity. And we are thankful that you took what was meant for evil. And you used it for good. We pray this all in Christ's 
most precious and holy name. Amen.